PV Mart stores are rooted in the communities we serve, and we are connected to the land in the same way our customers are. Whether you're an urban farmer, backyard chicken aficionado, traditional rancher, or anything in between, we offer just the right mix of homesteading, outdoor adventure, DIY, yard and garden, outdoor and workwear, husbandry, livestock, and pet supplies. Whether you're a dabbler or all in, we're here to help and strive to offer a range of products that will meet the unique needs of our customers. PV Mart will always be there with the tools, equipment, indoor or outdoor wares, seed or feed, for everyday work, fun, or connecting to the land on a whole new level. For more information, go to pvmart.com. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. Ah, the noble bee. Seen buzzing around yards and gardens across Canada throughout the summer months, generating honey, pollinating crops and flowers, and generally being busy. Our relationship with bees is not a new one. For thousands of years, humans have known about and exploited bees for their honey and have learned to use hives and colonies in the production of our own food. We've managed to export them across the world with huge success. In recent years, the importance of bees to our food security has become a topic most people have at least a passing knowledge of, and the once-feared creature who ruined birthday parties and picnics with the threat of a painful sting is now the popular subject of science fairs and animated movies. In short, bees are great, and I want to know more. So I called up Paul Kelly, the research and apiary manager for the Honey Bee Research Center at the University of Guelph. We talked about winterizing your bee colony, the biggest threat to the bee population these days, and how simply being born in the autumn can mean a much longer life. Paul, thanks for joining me here on Connected to the Land. You're very welcome, Ian. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, it's well, it's our pleasure. Um, so listen, you write on your bio on the University of Guelph website that your love for bees started with a science project when you were in grade six. Uh, I wonder if you can, can tell me a, a little bit about that, that project and, and what fascinated you about bees initially. Well, I needed to do a science project and my dad uh, actually came up with the idea and took me down the road to visit a good friend of his, uh, John McLaughlin. And John was referred to as Honey Boy McLaughlin, even though he, at that time, he probably would have been 50 years old, but that was his nickname, Honey Boy McLaughlin. And he's a commercial beekeeper, so he explained bee biology and beekeeping in, you know, rudimentary terms, and that certainly uh, piqued my interest at that time. Wow. And, uh, and it just kept going from there, did it? Well, I uh, did a lot of outdoor work, uh, not beekeeping first off, but uh, I really enjoy working outdoors. So I was looking for a career uh, where I could be uh, doing just that, uh, working out in the environment and nature and, uh, and you know, rural areas. 
And um, when I went to university, I happened to meet a fellow that had just was just graduating from apiculture. And we had a really great conversation and that inspired me to uh, look into that as an, as an occupation and mm-hmm. uh, take courses in beekeeping and uh, you know move around working for beekeepers in different areas to to learn what I could. Yeah. What is it about bees specifically that you find so fascinating? Oh, there's just so much. They we, We've been working with bees for thousands of years, so we know a lot about them. They have a very complex uh, social uh, system hmm. that's evolved for over millions of years. And it's just remarkable, all the little... Uh, uh, Scenarios that play out within a beehive with different kinds of communication, thermal regulating, controlling temperature within their hive, defending their hives. Just so much of what they do uh, is so effective. And uh, because we've studied them for so long, we figured out a lot of how uh, many of these things work. And we can work with them and Mm -hmm. uh, knowing about their biology and working with their biology, we can help them out. And uh, by doing that, they can produce a surplus of honey, which we can harvest and we can uh, use their services for pollination for, for food crops and so on. So there's a lot you can do with bees and, and Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that makes it interesting too, just the diversity of, of, um, end goals that you have in working with bees. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you mentioned that we've been working with bees and studying bees for, for hundreds, well, thousands of years, I think is what you said, and, uh, are known about them. And, and I, I think about my life growing up as, as a child, which is not thousands of years ago and, uh, my understanding and, and sort of the general understanding of what bees were, I, it doesn't seem to be quite as advanced as what my kids are learning now. You know, I think about how we were all our attitudes toward them, whether, you know, everyone was quite fearful of them, but things have changed quite a bit just in the last generation. I feel, is that, is that a fair thing or am I just now that I'm older, I think everything is changing. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's, we've had some really significant health issues with bees, and that's brought them to uh, the forefront um, of people's consciousness. And so uh, there's a lot more known about bees, generally speaking. It used to be the question I would get first was, you know, your beekeeper, that how many times you get stung or what about the killer bees? It was all about right. kind of the stings and some of the negative side of things. Right. Yeah. And now people are asking me, how are the bees doing? I know they're really vital for, for pollination and, and for their environment. And mm-hmm. so that there's a, a real steep increase in the awareness of the importance of these over the last 15 years, uh, let's say, and that was precipitated by, you know, the the scare that we got over uh, increased colony losses uh, starting at about that point. Right. So suddenly uh, everyone very quickly began to understand how the loss of bees is going to affect them directly then, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You could see a personal uh, Mm -hmm. uh, connection there. You know, beekeeping's at, it used to be viewed as kind of a fringe activity, not in a negative sense, but just something that wasn't at all 
mainstream. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's changed uh, quite a bit too, with interest in local food production, with um, getting involved in, in agriculture and on small scale. Yeah. Uh, it, it fits in with some other general trends uh, that are, that are happening. And uh, so it's an exciting time uh, to be in, working with bees and in particular in bee education. I mean, these really are amazing creatures. And you mentioned that they're also, uh, they're very social creatures as well, which is unusual in the insect world, isn't it? Yeah, there are some social insects, but uh, the the vast majority are solitary Mm. and bees exhibit uh, quite a a range there, a spectrum. Um, Some are social, like bumblebees and honeybees, and there are 10 different species of honeybees. There's also stingless bees that are social insects. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then there's some that are solitary but gregarious, and a good example of that would Mm -hmm. be squash bees that live in holes in the ground, where a lot of them live in a similar area or close together. So, And then there's other individuals that live in little holes in the ground that they burrow themselves or into in beetle burrows in trees and even hollow plant stems. So there's, uh, there, in Ontario, there are 423 species of different bees, or that's the current count. Oh, wow. Uh, and, okay. Yeah. And there are over 20,000 species of bees on the planet. So oh my gosh. Uh, they're really abundant when it comes to the number of species. Uh, working with honeybees, mm-hmm. um, most beekeepers in the world work with a species called Apis mellifera. Okay. And it's uh, very definitely a social insect. It's the most highly evolved uh, bee species. Um, you say highly evolved. I mean, we've been, uh, I, I, I don't want to use the word tampering, but we, but we have been sort of breeding and selecting bees for quite a long time, haven't we? Um, Is this evolution something that they've come up with largely on their own, or or is this human intervention that has sort of designed a bee that that fits our needs? Well, um, first of all, they evolve regionally uh, to adapt to their climate conditions. And then if there are geographic barriers, for example, uh, mountain ranges, that tends to isolate the different, like there are different races of bees within the species apis mellifera there are different races that are okay and uh so they've evolved naturally in their environment without human intervention but i'll Mm -hmm. get into the human intervention in a moment sure uh in sub-saharan africa there are bees that are exhibit you know highly defensive behavior and that evolved because of uh predation uh mostly from uh, mammals, but, uh, you know, they, which couldn't include humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, any less defensive colonies are basically wiped out by their predators. So that you can see how that would over the long term breed for a more defensive bee because the only ones that survive are the more defensive ones. Uh, and that back in time, people hunted for honey. They found the beehives, they destroyed the bees and took the honey. So it right. was, uh, it, we do things a lot differently now. Um, but there is some work done to breed bees for mm-hmm. characteristics that are beneficial. Generally, that's it's done uh, for resistance to diseases. 
and right. for productivity. And so uh, in a lot of these cases, we're just kind of helping with nature, with evolution, but there's no um, genetic modification or anything like that. It's, okay. But there is our methods used that are similar to other livestock breeding where we test colonies and look for, you know, good attributes and then breed from the stock that exhibits that. Um, for example, we work with a strain of bees called Buckfast bees that were mm -hmm. developed by a monk named Brother Adam at Buckfast Abbey in England. And he was breeding for resistance to diseases, gentle behavior, so low defensive behavior. Right. And some other characteristics that are beneficial to both bees and beekeepers. And so we, we keep up with that uh, breeding method that he's developed. Um, so it's a European bee that we, that we see a lot of here in, in Canada. Is that right? I mean, I know you mentioned there are so many different species, but um, how many of these species are, are actually native to North America as opposed to having been brought in from other parts of the world? Well, the, the honeybee that we work with, Apis mellifera, mm -hmm. uh, originates in Europe, in Africa, and in near Asia. Uh, in Eastern Asia and Southeastern Asia, there are different honeybee species that are used uh, by beekeepers there. And um, some of them are manageable because they live in cavities like our honeybee does. And others aren't manageable. They, you know, build comb in the open on tree limbs, for example, or right. cliff uh, uh, protected areas on cliffs. So... Yeah, but the, the Apis mellifera did not exist in North America. We brought that in along with all the other livestock that we uh, use for agriculture right. and a lot of the crops that were brought in uh, for feeding humans. So many of these crops require honeybee pollination or at least pollination by some insect. And honeybees are really you know, vital for agriculture they're also beneficial for natural uh, situations, uh, but the native bees are more important for uh, you know the, the natural environment and pollinating specific plants. Um, uh, right. But mm -hmm. When it comes to human food, though, uh, a third of the food that we eat uh, benefits from bee pollination, and that's the most no nutritious and delicious component of our food: fruits, seeds, nuts, berries, and so on. Mm. And of that pollination, 80% of it is provided by honeybees. So they are really vital for our food production. Wow. I mean, it's amazing to me that, that when we see bees flying around in the summertime, the fact that, you know, they've, a lot of them have been introduced from another environment. Uh, I mean, but you make a very good point. A lot of our food that we're eating, uh, also our, a lot of our agriculture comes from another environment, another part of the world as well. Um, it's amazing that they can also be so successful given that the climate here in Canada can be quite severe and quite different from perhaps where um, specifically these bees are, are coming from. And I, that's kind of where we're going with this conversation because I want to talk to you about winterizing bees. And I'm wondering if maybe we can talk a little bit about that, you know, because bees are super active in the summer. That's generally when a lot of us who, who are not working with them like you are uh, have an encounter with them. But 
Um, I wonder if you can maybe just give me a little bit of an idea about how things change for them in the winter months and, and how how the bees that you're working with tend to fare in the winter months, given that Canada has maybe not necessarily been where, where they've evolved. Um, sure, Ian. Um, our bee, we live in a temperate climate, of course. And uh, in, in Europe, it's a temperate climate as well, maybe not as harsh as some areas in Canada. But uh, so we're not really pushing the limit too far as far as where we keep bees uh, that originated in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. They, we do a lot of things to help get them through the winter, um, but they're pretty good at it themselves too. Right. They basically store honey for short and long-term food uh, use, but day to day in the summer they're eat, they're producing honey, they're eating honey, and over time they accumulate more and more honey going into winter. Mm-hmm. They st- are able to store that away so that through the winter, when there are no flowers available, they still have access to food. And that gives them the energy they need to go about their daily chores, but also uh, per, is basically their fuel for heating the hive for the winter. All right. And the way that works is they eat honey, they vibrate their wing muscles to generate heat, and then they cluster together to conserve that heat so they can keep the inside of that cluster at plus 30 degrees C right through the winter. Wow. That's amazing. It is pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, but so we need to make sure they have an adequate uh, uh, supply of food to make yeah. it through the winter. There are other things we do to manage the hives as well. Um, well, okay, I want to get into those other things. But I'm now I'm thinking about what you're saying about honeybees and how they're they're creating this food that helps them survive through the winter. Um, but we take a lot of that food from them, don't we? I mean, that's that's a byproduct of have having honeybees is having honey. Um, do they mind this? Like, is this a symbiotic relationship we have with them? Or are they, you know, would they rather we actually keep our hands off their honey? <laughs> well, uh, it's a very good question. And it's, uh, you know, depending on how you look at things, it, um, you might feel that we're taking advantage of bees. I, I personally don't feel that way. Um, we, the colonies that we have basically wouldn't exist if we weren't managing them. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're propagating bees so that there are enough available to produce the food and the, uh, that they need the food that we can harvest and do the pollinations required. So, mm-hmm. um, we are keeping them going, uh, in that respect, we do harvest, uh, honey, but what we harvest is a surplus of honey. Bees can produce okay. more food than they actually need if we manage them well. Mm-hmm. And, and to a point, uh, in the fall of the year, most beekeepers do supplement the colonies by feeding them some sugar syrup, which the bees then uh, ripen and secrete enzymes and convert it into material that's very, very mm-hmm. much like honey uh, for them to get through the winter on. So it's... Uh, in some ways, maybe like uh, feeding calves, uh, you know, powdered milk when we're weaning them off the off the cows. Like there's, 
you know, we manage things in a way that uh, will work for both the bees and for us. Right. And beekeepers basically wouldn't be in business if their bees died all the time. Uh, we, right. When you're in working in bees, especially as an occupation, yeah, you do need to get pretty good at keeping bees alive. And it, that's actually not the easiest thing to do. But uh, ah, Okay. Well, what are some of the challenges of keeping your bees alive in the winter? Well, um, we basically do all our management for the winter in the fall. Oh, okay. But we need to be thinking of the fall and the winter even as early as June. Uh, for example, in June, it's a time of year where we might divide hives. If we've lost some collies over the winter, we, by June, have the opportunity to divide very populous collies and we can have two hives um, instead of just one by doing that division. Um, if we do that too late in the year, then neither the parent collie or the offspring collie have the opportunity to build up and be populous enough to get through the next winter. Right. So that's an example where we need to think a long time ahead. Uh, once we get into the fall and we have populous hives, uh, we need to be ensuring that they're healthy. Mm -hmm. And one of the most significant problems we have with honeybees is a parasite called Varroa destructor. Oh. It's an external parasite. It pokes holes in the bee's body, feeds on their blood, or which is called hemolymph, and, but also their uh, protein reserves. Uh, so it, it weakens the bee in that regard, but it also vectors in virus that wouldn't get into the bee without that hole being punctured there. And then it suppresses the bee's immune system. So uh, that's why it's got the name Varroa destructor. It's, yeah. uh, it's a really bad thing for bees. So if we don't manage uh, that mite, our hives would all be dead. It's in it, it, virtually every hive in North America, much of the world as well. Uh, so these parasites uh, are lethal to beehives, and we have to manage those parasites and minimize their population in order to have our bees uh, surviving. So that's the biggest challenge uh, right. in keeping beehives alive is dealing with this varroa mite. And where does this uh, where does this uh, bite come from? And and you say it's in virtually every hive already, or do they do they pick it up externally, or and how do you how do you how do you actually take care of it? Um, all great questions there. The yeah, this uh, varroa mite. It's spelled V A R R O A, mm -hmm. and then M I T E, and they're a really fast reproducing uh, organism. They can uh, very quickly jump up to big numbers through this exponential growth and they uh, they came from a different honeybee species okay. in one in southeast asia called apis serrana and apis serrana and these varroa mites co-evolved for thousands of years and so the parasite survived the host survived you know albeit somewhat uh, affected uh, but the you know the parasite didn't kill the host. Uh, when that parasite was introduced to European bees, uh, it thrived, did really well. But the host had no natural uh, history of evolution of resistance. Right. So 
So they really affect our our bees. Our work at the University of Guelph Honeybee Research Center is largely focused on dealing with this mite. And we're long-term breeding for resistance, looking for the same resistance characters that are found in the Southeast Asian bee, Apis serrana. So for example, the ability to groom the mites off their body, uh, to remove them from hive, to damage them, and uh, just good hygienic behavior, you know, keep, keeping their hives clean helps to get rid of these mites. Mm-hmm. So that, that longer term, that's what we're doing to uh, control the mite. In shorter term, there's some cultural controls that we use. If we can, uh, I mentioned earlier about dividing hives. If yeah. we do that and then introduce uh, an immature queen to the split that mm-hmm. we've made up that doesn't have a queen, uh, the the larva and pupa production is diminished for a period of time, and that's what the mites reproduce on. So by lowering that, uh, what we call brood, larva and pupa, uh, we can actually knock the mite level down. Uh, so there's, we can use screens on the bottom of the hives mm-hmm. uh, so that some of the mites fall down through those screens. Uh, we can... Uh, uh, they, the mites prefer to reproduce in drones, which are the male bee. Uh, so the, those drone pupa have uh, take longer to develop, and so the mites can reproduce better in mm. the, the drones. Right. So there are ways that we can use that. Uh, we can trap mites by uh, collecting it in drone cells and then removing them uh, before the, the mites emerge. So those are the cultural controls. Uh, there are chemical controls that are are used as well. Uh, our work at the university is focused on finding naturally occurring materials, uh, which are basically essential plant oils and organic acids. But uh, synthetic materials are used as well. And we've done a lot of testing to ensure their efficacy and their safety within the, the colonies. So, but basically beekeepers need to do at least two or three different things to control varroa mites in order to be able to have uh, good control. So that we call that uh, integrated pest management where we're applying Mm -hmm. uh, multiple tools to be able to control something. Um, It's, it's not simple. And uh, it, it, you know, when I explain this, it, you know, uh, it can be kind of complex to take in, but that's where uh, education really helps uh, because we do know how to uh, get around these problems, but you know it's not that simple. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound simple at all. And uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who possibly are listening to this podcast who have considered having bees or, or do already have bees in their backyard. And uh, I just want to mention that uh, the website that I've been on, that uh, um, that you're featured on quite a bit, is um, has a lot of important information. I think on um, how to handle honeybee um, and and any kind of bee colony you might be considering putting in your backyard. Just wanting to know more. It's it's h hbrc.ca. Um, where a lot of the information you're talking about today is actually listed on this website. Um, this is this is great. I want to circle back a little bit though, because we we didn't 
uh, talk too much about the bees actually in the wintertime. And you said so many really amazing things about about how they uh, how they survive and and what the dangers are. But um, I want to get a better sense of what actually is happening inside the hive during the winter months because we don't see the bees outside very much. But they are they they don't or or I'll just let you answer the question. Are they hibernating? Is that what you would call it? Or are they still too active to be considered hibernating? And what are they doing? Uh, yeah, it's, it's um, you're right. There's, you don't see much going on, but there is a lot going on inside the hive. So we don't call it uh, uh, hibernation. They, they, we've already talked about the food that they need to, to keep warm and the fact that they cluster together to conserve uh, the heat. Now this cluster, is made up of a loose bunch of bees in the middle and then a tighter mantle around the outside. Uh, so that mm. mantle prevents heat from escaping. And okay. all this, of course, is formed around the uh, series of vertical combs that the bees uh, construct. And they, they can shift a little bit from one area to another to access more food. Right. But... It's tough for them to do that when the weather is really, really cold. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. So we we do some things to help uh, them get through the winter. We wrap our hives in colder climates, so we put a wrap around the outside of the hive. Typically, that's black, and so it help it absorbs heat from the sun and helps warm up the hive. We also insulate the colonies at the at a minimum. Put some insulation on the top of the the hive. And then we reduce the entrances so there aren't, there isn't a lot of draft uh, moving into the colony. Mm -hmm. We can't eliminate those entrances because they need to breathe. And they also, uh, through respiration, produce a lot of moisture that needs to be able to escape from the hive or it would condense and drip down on them. Oh, right. Yeah. um, So we provide an upper entrance for that purpose and then insulate them and wrap them. Uh, But if we've done everything right in the fall, we just leave them alone through the winter. Uh, opening up hives when it's cold is not good for them. Hmm. Uh, so it's best just to leave them alone for the winter. Um, but what happens naturally, they'll go into the winter with uh, a, a pretty high population. They start right. off with somewhere in the neighborhood 40 to 50,000 bees uh, in mid-October. Right. It's it's actually higher than that in the summer. It'd be about 60,000 bees in the summer. Hmm. But there's been some dwindling uh, by mid-October, and that dwindling continues throughout the winter. So as bees get older, they perish, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, but the hope is that there's enough bees left in the spring that they can, there can be a, uh, core group of bees that's big enough to be able to repopulate the hive, to heat up an area for the queen to lay eggs in, to, to go, to forage for the food that's needed to raise the young. Mm-hmm. And so you have a, a decline all winter long. And then once you start getting into April and particularly in May, the population starts going back up again. Right. But if it drops down to a really low population, it's very tough for them to, to, to bounce back. And of course, if it drops to zero, the hive is dead. Yeah, well, of course. Um, now, the lifespan of, of your average bee, I know it depends on what kind of bee we're talking about, drones or foragers or, or queens. 
my understanding is that it's it's not that long, and yet uh, some of these hives are surviving several months um, without. Um, well, with during the winter months, I'm wondering, is there is there a different kind? Like, is there a winter bee as opposed to a summer bee? Like the bees that are born in in the fall, are they just able to survive longer because they have to essentially be a little less active during that time? Yeah, you pretty well nailed it there. The, the, um, there are winter bees and there are okay. summer bees. So summer bees basically live six weeks. So from when they're an adult, when they emerge as an adult, they have about a six-week lifespan. And as they get older, they start with simple tasks within the hive. And as they get older, they move on to more complex and more dangerous tasks. So they finish up by hmm. foraging uh, for nectar, pollen, water, and uh, some sticky stuff they collect from trees called propolis. Okay. And um, so that's what they're foraging for. And they basically wear their body out. When By the time they die, everything is worn out. So it, it's uh, pretty efficient in that regard. Yeah. Uh, when bees are being reared in late summer and fall, those will become winter bees. And uh, a big factor in how long bees live is the amount of protein reserves they have uh, stored in their body. When bees are feeding young, they use those protein reserves to, to produce the food that they secrete through their tongue and put into the cells with the larva. And so they're, they're decreasing their longevity when they're feeding their, their younger sisters that way and brothers. But in the fall, the, they, they don't need to feed more bees because the queen stops laying usually around the first frost in the fall. So that hmm. late September, early October, they stop laying eggs. Uh, they, they'll lay a few here and there through the winter, but nothing too significant. Yeah. So those winter bees can live for up to six months. So you get six weeks out of a summer bee and wow. six months out of a winter bee. Wow. So it's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if they're healthy and aren't affected by the virus, might mites can um, transfer to bees. They can live that six months. But one thing that uh, uh, affects their longevity is whether they've been exposed to mites or not. Right, of course. Um, now you mentioned you don't, generally intervene too much during the winter, but do you, do you get a sense in the colder months how things are going or is it really just, you're just waiting for the snow to melt before you you know what to expect with the hive? Um, yeah, great question. The, it's, um, it's fine to get out and observe what your bees are doing, but um, we, I've noticed from some experiments we did years ago that just walking up to a hive, the, the vibration coming through the ground hmm. oh, wow. will get the bees worked up a little bit and hmm. we've done some experience where we had thermometers inside the hives and just walk just approaching a hive the inside temperature goes up five degrees c so it's kind of remarkable wow. that yeah. you know all that's going on in there and, and without those thermometers you wouldn't notice that at all something that we do notice over the winter on a nice sunny day even if it's cold bees fly out to defecate as long as they're healthy, they don't defecate inside the hive. So they accumulate feces uh, and they wait for those. And there's a warm, sunny day and they get out to void the feces. Some of them don't make it back to the hive. They chill and drop to the ground. Right. Yeah. And you wish you could do something about that, but it's just 
the natural process. But for new beekeepers, it's very common for them to get concerned with that because they'll see dead bees on the ground and uh, think that something is amiss when really it's just nature taking its course. When they defecate, you'll get yellow spots on the ground. Mm. Um, we can see that there's a, a health issue if you have an excess amount of that around a particular calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are there's some um, diseases that affect these um, digestive system, and that's yeah. a symptom of one of those uh, problems. But uh, so those are the kinds of things you can see. Uh, some animals do, like we see possums going around and eating dead bees off the ground, chickadees flying out and picking up the the bees that have just dropped and chilled. Like they, they get nice fresh ones that way. Uh, but nothing too major um, as far as animals disturbing the hives. Right. Uh, okay. So, well, you, you mentioned uh, fresh and young or inexperienced beekeepers, maybe being a little bit um, upset or, or, or seeing, uh, you know, what, what could be construed as a loss of bees in the wintertime. Do, do you have any other advice that you can impart for people that might be thinking, you know, I've heard about urban beekeeping. I'd like to, I'd like to try to do this. What should people be thinking about when they get started? Uh, yeah, just to finish up with the, the wintering there. Um, yeah, of course. Bees, bees do die off over the winter, like colonies can die. And uh, beekeepers might want, they might want to know if those hives have died because you might want to be ordering more bees from another beekeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, you don't really have to open up the hive, but just look on a warm, sunny day uh, in February and March when there should be activity bees coming out. Uh, that's a good time to observe and just see from the outside if your bees are alive. Um, I wouldn't open them up unless you really think they've they're dead and you want to check check them out to make sure of that. But as far as getting into beekeeping, um, there's uh, a, there's a tremendous amount of uh, resource material available, uh, so much online and a lot of good information. But there's a lot of you know questionable information or just alternative methods and. Uh, I encourage people that are getting into beekeeping to stick with what's typically done in your region and learn from other beekeepers and people teaching courses in your area. Um, some information online is not suitable for our area or uh, and, and other information is outlines management methods that you might want to try once you get a bit of experience and have some success under your belt. Yeah. But um, so it's best just to stick with kind of tried and true methods. And that includes the types of hives that uh, you're using that the, the standard uh, beekeeping equipment is, is ideal. But um, we offer courses at the University of Guelph, the Ontario Beekeepers Association offer beekeeping courses. I really encourage people to take a course Many other courses out there. I can't vouch for all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have uh, a series of 72 beekeeping videos that are available on our site, hbrc.ca. Uh, they're hosted on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And we have in the neighborhood of 60,000 subscribers and I don't know, somewhere around 8 million views of these videos. So they've become pretty popular. Uh, we, we basically break them 
beekeeping down into small chunks of individual skills that uh, you need to learn. Many of those videos are advanced level ones, but we have them all broken down into categories so people can start with the basic ones. Uh, so th that's a, a good place to go to get a sense of what beekeeping is about. I would still uh, encourage people to take a beekeeping course. Um, and of course, not everyone is, is necessarily looking to um, have bees in their backyard that they that they want a husband or look after. Uh, but yet almost everyone has some experience with them if you have a yard. So um, what, what are some things that we should be thinking about when we're just taking care of our own property that maybe can help the bees uh, when we're getting ready to plant our, our gardens or when we're getting ready to uh, plant flowers or whatever, or, or maybe to not cut things down that, that could that could help bees in the future. Yeah, thanks for asking that, Ian. There's a lot that uh, people can do, and it's not all just getting into to beekeeping. There's a lot we can do to support honeybees, and especially to support all the native bees. In some ways, they're a little bit more fragile. Um, hmm. So there's, but planting for uh, bees is a, a great idea, and I, I encourage people to think big. Okay, and start thinking about trees first. Oh, and all right. There are many trees that benefit bees, and people often don't even think about that. But yeah, uh, uh, our website also has resources on the kinds of plants, so I won't get into that too much. But mm -hmm. if we think about trees, and then broader landscapes like roadsides, parks. Uh, industrial lots, for example, areas where there's large um, masses of uh, land available. Uh, a lot of what helps bees happens naturally. If we just stop, uh, allow land masses to naturalize, let the plants grow up that want to grow there, uh, that's a pretty easy way of benefiting pollinators. On a smaller scale in people's backyard, in their lawns and garden, there's lots that can be done there as well. But it takes a lot of people to doing that to add up to something significant. Right, right. Um, but a lot of plants that grow in gardens are quite beneficial to pollinators, but some of them aren't. Some of them have been hmm. bred by people just for their aesthetic appeal, and they no longer uh function to feed pollinators so being aware of which ones do benefit bees uh, can be helpful but so trees shrubs gardens and then we can think about the ground covers as well right um it not everybody wants to have dandelions growing in their lawn and i personally think that's fine if you want them fine if you don't want them fine um they're really abundant in our landscape anyway. Okay. But what I do encourage people to let their lawns grow a little bit longer and mm. maybe cut a little less frequently. And then you will get some other plants coming up too, like white Dutch clover and bird's foot trefoil, uh, different plants in the mint family. Um, plantain. Uh, there's many, mm -hmm. many different plants that will just, with it, if we don't spray and we don't cut too short and too often, a lot of these plants will just come up and they're nice and green. They're, they're good ground cover, but they also flower and uh, benefit pollinators. Yeah. Uh, much, much of this kind of work that I'm speaking of benefits 
native bees more than honeybees. Oh, okay. Honeybees tend to forage in fields where there are masses of flowers. So they are often working more in agricultural fields. Right. And bigger, broader landscapes. But native bees don't fly as far afield. They, they will work on individual flowers here and there. And so the backyards are a, a great place to be supporting all those other bees. Right. Uh, so honeybees are not necessarily what we're going to see in a, in a downtown urban setting. Uh, you'll see a bit of both. And, yeah. um, uh, but the, uh, in my backyard, I live in Fergus, Ontario. In my backyard, I see more native bees than honeybees for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you, but you have to know what you're looking for. They don't I always guess. look like a bee. Oh, really? Okay. Some of them are tiny. Then most of them are yellow and black striped. They're, you know, different colors. Um, uh, These yellow and black stripes are basically a warning. I can sting. So, uh, mm. and a lot of these native bees don't sting. Wow. Um, uh, Paul, I mean, we could just, uh, there are several other podcasts we could do on this. Obviously, we could <laughs> go on for a long time. We are reaching the end of our podcast here today, however. Um, I wonder if maybe we can just end on, I don't want to end on too gloomy a foot, but I, I do want to ask you what you think maybe is one of the bigger threats that are facing bees today in today's world. Well, um, as we uh, discussed earlier, um, everybody is a bee advocate now. It's kind of, mm. it's really interesting to see that shift. If you want to be supporting uh, bees and pollinators, uh, some of the things that we suggest are planting for bees. Uh, consuming local honey is another one. Um, All right. The If you're buying honey from a local beekeeper, that their bees are, are what's doing the pollination in your region. So, you know, it does, it does really help out if you're supporting uh, local producers in that regard. There's lots of bee health issues that we do research with, so we always appreciate any kind of help we can get. Uh, but because honeybees have all these advocates working for them, I think we'll get through the struggles that we have right now. Mm. Uh, there's an economic uh, incentive for people to to keep honeybees going, and so. We're going to do our very best with that. But uh, uh, some of the native bees, as I mentioned, uh, we need to do a lot more research uh, with them. Generally speaking, what we do to help one helps the other. Like if we have more Mm. forage habitat available, it's going to help more than just honeybees. It'll help those uh, native bees. Pesticide use, there's some issues uh, with pesticides. So, you know, if we're managing them carefully, uh, that's going to benefit all pollinators. So uh, the, there's a lot that can be done and that, that people can do in their own own backyard. And it's, it's a really a win-win situation. You have beautiful flowers around. You get to watch these really fascinated creatures come and go from your, your property. And you, you really feel connected to, uh, to nature uh, when you're doing things like this. Oh, there we go. What a lovely way to bring it back around to, uh, to, the, to the podcast. I appreciate that. Um, Paul, this, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been my absolute pleasure, Ian. Thank you very much. Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, PV Mart, the 100% Canadian-owned, down-to-earth retail chain. 
If you enjoyed this program, you should consider subscribing. Also, you can check us out at connectedtotheland.info, our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening.